Greetings and salutations, loyal listeners. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. This is Kevin DeYoung, and I'm joined with Colin Hansen and Justin Taylor, who you will hear from shortly, and also our special guest, who I will introduce in just a moment. We want to thank again Crossway for sponsoring this podcast. Lots of good books coming out from Crossway today. We want to highlight the newest from Brett McCracken, who always is not only a good writer, but lots of thoughtfulness and looking at current events. And for someone, Colin, you know, because he writes for TGC all the time, for someone who is so attuned to media and movies and television, he's the right person to have written this book, The Wisdom Period uh, Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World. That may sound strange, but Brett actually thinks a lot about that and is a very thoughtful commenter and intaker of media. So the Wisdom Pyramid, Feeding Your Soul in a Post-Truth World, published by Crossway, Brett McCracken. Check that out. All right, here we are. And as we're recording this, we are on the cusp of many basketball tournaments and March Madness. I do think that my Spartans are going to make it. Sadly, I don't think that Northwestern winning the first three, losing 13 in a row, and then winning the last three is going to do it. And Nebraska is well cemented in the basement. Any any comments, Colin and Justin? Let's, uh, let's just say I... I did not win the Life in Books and Everything tournament in football due to that loss to Michigan State that I do not want to talk about. But because of yesterday's last second win, I did win it in basketball. So take that. Northwestern took down both Michigan State and Nebraska in basketball this that year. That is true. <laughs> Colin and I may have been the only two people in America texting each other about that game. Included. I, I, I wrote Justin right away and said, I was far too emotionally invested in that game. <laughs> well, are you rooting for Alabama now in basketball? Oh, of course. Of course. That just makes things more interesting. They, they play a very fun brand of basketball. More fun, I might say, than Nebraska and Northwestern's brand. But uh, hey, I'm just glad we've got March Madness back. I'm oh. just glad we got something to watch. That was uh, uh, one of many smaller losses, but nevertheless a loss uh, from the last year. And one of the first signs that things were not going to be okay uh, last year. So I'm just grateful. Yeah, two connections to COVID. I mean, number one, Nebraska, their entire team, including coaching staff, got COVID in the middle of the oh, season. Wow. They were out for like a month and a half of no games. Oh, wow. um, and then going back to last year, that was the time I think that I realized, oh, this is a really big deal when I was on an airplane flying back from Chicago to Sioux City and looked at my phone and saw the NBA season's canceled. They don't just cancel that over the flu. So that was that was a big wake-up call. Well, you remember earlier that the uh, Utah Jazz player had made a joke about it and wiped down the microphone and everything, and then three days later, he's got it. And at that time, we didn't know what that meant. We, we didn't know if that meant, oh my gosh, this guy's got a real chance to lose his life here. Now, a year later, we know that that was, not almost, that was almost certainly not going to happen. But at the time, we just didn't know. 
that was a scary time, and thankfully we've learned a lot in the last year. Well, that is a good segue to today's guest, who is uh, well knowledge, well versed, and knowledgeable on many subjects, including COVID. So we're going to ask him about that. We are very pleased to have Miguel Nunez with us. When I Googled that, I found that he is also an actor, just like Stephen Nichols was. There's well, Miguel <laughs> Nunez. But this is the pastor, Miguel Nunez. Miguel has been uh, gracious enough with his wife, Kathy, has been in Charlotte for the past several days and spoke at our missions conference, did a wonderful job, gave two great expositions from 2 Corinthians 5 at our church, and has been doing a number of things with our folks. So thank you, Miguel. Miguel has received his Master's of Theology at Southern Baptist School for Biblical Studies, a Doctor of Ministry from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, and a Doctor of Medicine. And we'll hear about that, but he practiced and taught for many years in New Jersey. He has been for the past, oh, he'll tell us, more 15 years, 20 years? The pastor for preaching and vision at Iglesia Bautista Internacional and president of Ministerios Integridad at Sabiduría. How'd I do? In Santo Domingo, Dominican Republic. He's a council member for the Gospel Coalition, also vice president at Coalición. He's authored numerous books and is a very smart and humble man. His wife, Kathy, is also a doctor and endocrinologist, practicing physician. They've been married for almost 40 years. Miguel, wow, you sound really smart. Thank you for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it has been a great time to be here at your church and now with these uh, two other friends, uh, Justin yeah. Taylor and Colin Hanson. So thank you, Kevin, again. Well, thank you. So we, we will talk about your pastoral ministry, uh, some theology, that's what's nearest to your heart and what you're most what's most important but also important especially in this past year is uh, your expertise in medicine and this is not just like you know somebody who years and years ago did a little medicine on the side i mean you you, you really this is your expertise infectious diseases and you have been very busy in the Dominican Republic for the past year so here's my first question. You wrote a piece for TGC. I just looked. It was almost exactly a year ago when COVID first really got the world's attention. Uh, do you feel like you your assessment from a year ago was more or less correct? Or would you change what you thought of COVID March 2020? Well, in general, I think I, I, think I, I thought about it in the right direction. Uh, it was definitely a respiratory illness. I think by February or last year, there were publications already predicting that the mortality was not going to be more than 1%, uh, that the behavior of the virus was in some sense similar to what the flu virus is, and uh, that what we needed to do is what has been done, respiratory isolation type of uh, measures. And that has been maintained. Uh, the numbers in terms of mortality, uh, I think is it's just about 0 0.5, 0 0.6, 0 0.7, depending upon the region. Uh, same thing that had been predicted. It's a virus that it was supposed to behave the way the flu virus behaves. And, and luckily, um, the virus does not have the mortality that the first SARS 
uh, COVID virus had, which was about 10%, neither had the, has had the mortality of what the Merck's uh, syndrome, which is also a coronavirus infection, uh, caused in Saudi Arabia in 2012, which was about 35%. So um, I think the virus has behaved in, 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 sen- in some sense in a very similar way that was predicted. In other ways, however, I think some of the complications that we have seen, we did not predict that. I think the virus has been able to do some things that we did not know because the other coronavirus didn't do it. So if there is one aspect that we could say, no, no one would have guessed it, is uh, complications. I think that we all have to admit that. So looking back, and there's a difference between being an infectious disease physician and being a public policy expert, but looking back now over a year, are there things that you think the, the globe or the U.S. or the Dominican Republic policies we should have done differently that would have either mitigated the disease better or if not mitigating the disease would have been basically the same as what we've had without being as disruptive? What, what do you think we've learned in the past year that we could have done differently? Yeah, I think the population in some areas were not as disciplined and they were not as prudent. And I think if those two things would have been taken into consideration, meaning uh, we would have listened to uh, the instructions uh, in a consistent way and we would have followed them, in general, I think probably we would have done better, at least in certain areas and certain countries. Now, there are other countries and regions where things probably would have been the same no matter what. And that has to do with risk factors. Uh, we know now that probably the number one risk factor is obesity. And 90% of the, uh, of the death uh, have occurred in countries where the obesity rate is the highest, and that is the U.S. and Europe. And when you look at Italy, Italy, that's what happened in Spain and then the U.S. And then you look at uh, countries in the third world uh, area uh, where nothing much was done and where we don't have a lot of resources, and they have done fairly well. In general, Africa has done fairly well in general. Haiti, which is a country which has almost no resources, the disease has not been so catastrophic as it was predicted. And I think now we know some things about it. And and therefore, I think there are some areas where I think no matter what, probably we would have done the same. Uh, Miguel, I, I remember last year when you published that article with us, one of the things you commended was wearing masks. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people got upset at you for Mm -hmm. saying that because Dr. Fauci's recommendations and the CDC at the time were saying no to masks. Um, Now we know in retrospect that that was, I guess, an effort to keep the public from raiding masks and taking them away from healthcare workers, as far as we know uh, from that, if I understand that correctly. Um, It was a confusing time in some ways a year ago. I'm so glad you talked about the difference around the world because I just read a fascinating 
New York Times uh, newsletter speculating why this has not been so devastating in much of the majority world, in Africa in particular. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you concur with some of this. You mentioned obesity. I don't think they even mentioned that factor, but I think you're exactly right about that from everything I've seen. Mm -hmm. Um, But they also mentioned the population, especially um, in much of the majority world, is much younger, uh, less use of air conditioning i.e. more time spent outside, mm-hmm. and also fewer elderly people in nursing homes. Does that accord with your expectations? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that without a doubt, uh, people who are young uh, do significantly better. Um, the mortality for people below the age of 35 is probably around 0.0001. That's almost like unheard of that, that a person less than 35 would die. And obviously, when you have two and a half million people uh, diagnosed with the disease, some of them would be within uh, below that age, but that's not very common. Uh, when you look at children, the chances of a child getting into a hospital from COVID, uh, people, children who have COVID is less than one in 20,000. So without a doubt, then age is a significant factor. And then when you look at the U.S., you look at Italy, you look at Spain, uh, older population also uh, there, and therefore higher mortality. So yes, certainly. And obesity, well, an article that came out three days ago, I think from Yale University, is looking looking at five protein related to uh, neutrophils. That's the kind of white cells that we have, and they are they have obese obese people will have higher levels of these protein on a normal uh, on a normal day without COVID without pandemic. Um, now when they get hit with the virus, then those proteins go even higher. And those proteins are, are now linked to a much higher mortality. So you can see that um, obesity uh, is, is, I don't know if I want to call it a disease at this point, but it's a condition that put people at a higher risk for many conditions, including now these coronavirus that we know of. Uh, it has been said uh, and now has been proven that obesity causes a low-grade inflammatory condition in patients who are uh, who have uh, higher than what they should have uh, weight. So um, there is a problem there. Yeah, and does that uh, apply basically across the board to respiratory viruses, or is there something unique about COVID with regard to age and children and obesity, or is this? pretty much par for the course when you're dealing with viruses like this? Well, obesity uh, does add a significant mortality to uh, to any infections uh, that they experience. So I think we knew some of that already. But I think with COVID, we have seen it even uh, playing a more significant role, probably because lungs are affected uh, a lot more frequently with COVID than with other infectious disease agents. So that may be uh, one of the differences. Miguel, has anything surprised you? I mean, any surprise with how things have progressed? I mean, either either spiritually or um, or medically. Well, I'm glad you asked spiritually, because one thing surpri- that surprised me is the level of fear and the level of uh, lack of confidence in the future, and uh, and the level of even um, 
um, panic that I had found among believers was not necessarily much different from unbelievers. And that was a shocking surprise to me. I don't know how you play out in the U.S., but at least in Santo Domingo and some of the Latin countries, there were people who did not leave their house for months, which was uh, incredible. Uh, being believers and, and knowing that God is in control and, and knowing that uh, at the end of the day, our lives uh, have been deter- determined by our Lord and that our days have been counted by God. So that was shocking to me. Uh, the other part that has been shocking is... Um, Complications, I don't think some of the complications that we have seen and the variety of the complications that we have seen, uh, I don't think any of us expected that uh, because we have not seen them with prior coronavirus, even in 2012 in Saudi Arabia with that uh, outbreak. That outbreak was much smaller. It was like 2,400 people only. But even then, uh, and the mortality was 35%, but the the variety of the complication with this virus, uh, central nervous system for ones, uh, cardiac complications, lung complications, skin complications, uh, immunological complications, long-term complications, neuropsychiatric complications, really is, is a gamma of, of complications that we have uh, seen and from which we have learned as well. So I think that there has been a little bit of a surprise. Have you detected differences between uh the two countries that you primarily minister in have you had enough experience to see culturally they're playing out in different ways or does it seem pretty similar um meaning dominican republic and and uh, where the the united states the u.s yeah um i think in the dominican republic people started to wear masks and were more consistent, uh, if you will, than what I saw here, at least from the reports in, in, in the news all the time. I don't think that there was so much questioning about the instructions given by the government. Uh, Dominican Republic also has some restriction regarding uh, the time when you could be out. And that has a, that has been used throughout the year. Uh, just now, we are almost back to normal. Where we, we are not back there yet. So, um, you know, for, for many months, uh, businesses had to close about 5 p.m. and people had a couple of hours to get home. And then if you were out after that, you wouldn't go to jail, but you would be stopped and uh, you would be questioned and, uh, and there were some penalty for it if you don't have a good explanation. So also, I think that, that contributed to a much better we have one of the lowest lethality rate in the entire region, including below the U.S. and Canada and and Colombia and Chile and, and, and Argentina and Peru and Ecuador and Puerto Rico. And uh, we are just about 1.2 as the lethality rate, not the mortality rate, but the lethality rate, which is a much better index because lethality is basically number of cases diagnosed versus people who die. Uh, mortality is number of people that you estimate are infected in the entire country versus those who die. So that's much harder to, to calculate. Um, but I think some of that is related, at least in the Dominican Republic, is related to a much better control of how the population was allowed to move around during that period of time. Do you sense, Miguel, what may be coming next? 
for us? Is there a historic model that would that would suggest what may, what might be happening? And I'm I'm thinking specifically here related to to church leaders about what they should be thinking about. Um, how they should be planning, what perspective they should be bringing here. Well, regarding this uh, COVID-19, I think it's going to become just like the flu. It's going to be manageable, but I think it's going to be with us pretty much forever. Uh, Once we develop antiviral medications that will be more effective than what we have now, then I think all fears will be gone because between the vaccine and which, by the way, the vaccines that had been developed are significantly better than the vaccine that had been developed for the influenza. In a good year, the flu vaccine is no more than 66% effective. That's a good year. And bad years is 30, 40% effective. And you have vaccines like Moderna and Pfizer with uh, 95% effective, uh, and then Johnson & Johnson, 66% effective. So I think between the vaccines that have been developed plus antivirals that are continue to be developed, we'll probably manage the disease significantly better. But I think it's going to be with us. I don't think it's going to be gone uh, unless we can develop a vaccine that is almost like 100% and then almost everyone has uh, received the vaccine because we were able to eradicate uh, a smallpox from the planet. There hasn't been a case of a smallpox, a smallpox for more than 50 years. And polio is almost eradicated. It's not quite there yet, but there are very few regions in the world where you find polio, and that's the, uh, the effect of uh, uh, vaccination. So perhaps in the future, uh, this coronavirus and others could be eradicated as well. So I think the future, unless the virus does something uh, uh, we are, and, and we are in the sense that the variants that would develop would become so different, uh, the mutations would be so different, then, then we would be left with our vaccines again, unless something like that happened, which we don't have any historical model for it, uh, then I think we'll probably be okay regarding COVID. But there will be other, other viruses uh, uh, coming up in, in the next 10 years, or bacteria, uh, and that has been the nature of for, forever. There, there are always emerging new infectious diseases. There, there's a journal developed just to that, to emerging infectious diseases. So I think we need to be prepared for the future. Michael, earlier you, you talked about just some of the surprise you've had as a pastor with people in your area being very scared, staying at home, um, things like that. What else have you seen in your church? In any positive ways you've seen God at work? I, I One thing I'll just say is I would have expected a little bit more maybe um, contrition. It just seemed like in the middle of controversy, more of like, what might God be trying to do to help us or to, to show us something through this? And I, I just haven't seen a lot of introspection, but maybe you've seen that in your environment. What have you been seeing as a pastor? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that is precisely my my perception and my disappointment. Um, people ask me all the time if I think this is a, a judgment from God, and I always say, I don't know. However, I do know that even if this is only being allowed by God, uh, this is not a minor thing, and I think it's a time when we should be reviewing our lives and uh, there's one thing that COVID has revealed 
is how superficially the world uh, has been living. Uh, we have been under significant risk factors of other nature, uh, more powerful than COVID, and the world was totally ignorant of those uh, of those conditions. And we have had a uh, condition causing more death than COVID, uh, A910 of them, and, and the world was not even aware or even worry about about it and uh and then suddenly covid uh hit us and then everybody was scared but certainly there hasn't been much contrition at all and when covid started i uh, started immediately about a week later a new series of preaching i did 13 uh, messages on come back to me that's that was the title of the uh of the, of the series. And the reason for it was precisely trying to lead the people of God to a time of contrition or reviewing uh, to see what we would find there. And for us as a church was very significant and, and productive uh, to do that. And I think the, uh, the Old Testament was very helpful in, in doing that, looking at the situations of national situations with the people of Israel and how they reacted and what God was saying not necessarily saying this is the same situation, this is equal to that. However, I think since we're dealing with eternal truth, trying to discover how those uh, truths that they were living under uh, would apply today to, uh, to us as a church. So I'm afraid that because of what you said, that there hasn't been enough repentance uh, within the people of God, that we will see more of this in the future, trying to do, God trying to do the same thing. Uh, you know, there. I said uh, right after the pandemic began, and, and the first Sunday when we were closed, we were closed only for about four weeks in, in terms of the churches in Santo Domingo. That was it uh, officially. So on that first Sunday, I said, this is the most difficult sermon that I think I had preached in my life, or that I will preach. This was at the beginning. And the reason was, I said, because I need to do two things at the same time. They are in two different extremes or poles. One is I need to encourage you in the middle of a global situation and at the same time, I need to call you to repentance. And, uh, and, and to combine those two things in one sermon was, was hard, but it was done. Um, and I think people reacted very well. I saw people crying in our church at time. And I think that produced good fruit. Uh, however, in general, I'm with you, Colin. I don't think uh, we haven't seen enough of this. And is um, I don't... <laughs> I'm going to be careful to say this, but in part, I think the part of the the responsibility is on the leadership. And, and the reason I'm saying that is because we are too quick to encourage people. It's like, you know, your father, your mother, your wife die. Yeah, 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 but let's keep going. And, uh, you know, God will be with you and God will encourage you and God will sustain you. All of that is true. But if I don't do more than that, and I don't bring the people to the throne to review their lives, then I'm missing something that God is trying to, to do as well. So uh, that's why I said what I said. And I know that probably that's not going to be liked by a lot of people, but I think it's true. Miguel, uh, it's been 
really helpful. I want to connect the dots because you've been helping us think through COVID and your expertise as a medical doctor. But at some point, you you felt a, a call to leave what was a pretty successful, comfortable position for you and your wife in the States and to return back to the Dominican Republic. So give a, a little bit of your biography. Uh, you're from the DR, but your time sure. in America and then moving out of practicing medicine full-time to being a pastor. How did that happen? Well, um, I graduated from the from the university in my country, in Santo Domingo, in 1980. And uh, I was hired by the, the university immediately to teach uh, basic sciences. So I stayed there from, 19, from March 1980 until May of 1982. When I left the country, married to my wife, Kathy, uh, we got married in October 1981 and uh, came to the U.S. to do, Kathy had one more year to go of, uh, of studying, and then I was going to do my specialties. I did three years of internal medicine in New Jersey at Englewood Hospital, affiliated at that time with Cornell, today with um, uh, Mount Sinai. And uh, once I finished, I went to New York to do two, de- two years of infectious diseases with the New York Medical College. And then when I finished uh, those five years of training, I came back to, uh, to Englewood Hospital in Jersey uh, to practice medicine and also as an assistant clinical professor for the, uh, uh, for the faculty. And I stayed there until 1997. Uh, practicing medicine and teaching medicine as as well. So um, a year after being there, less than a year, uh, I had a brother who was a pilot. He crashed in uh, North Adams, Massachusetts. He was the, he was a pilot for a jet, a, a Learjet, and uh, there was a snowstorm. He he crashed and died. He was only forty two. At the time, was on, the only evangelical believer in our family, and that shook us up emotionally quite a bit. And we were in Santo Domingo on vacation when that took place. And I decided that when I would, uh, when I was back in the U.S., I would start reading the Bible and reading the history of Christianity to find out, you know, all of these different denominations and groups where they came so from. So you were not really an evangelical Christian at that point? I was not. Um, hmm. I was I wasn't in any church. My father died when I was 11 and a half. My father was a believer within the Catholic Church and taught me to read the Bible, taught me to pray to Christ only, taught me to believe basically what the Bible said, regardless of what the teaching of the Catholic Church was. But I, when my father died, I did not remain within the church precisely because what he what he had told me, or taught me. So... Um, at that time, I began to read the Bible, and I began to read, um, you may know the book, uh, it's a two-volume book of the history of Christianity by La Tourette mm-hmm. from Yale University, and uh, then I went out and tried to find a church that would teach what I had found in the Bible. And I found a church, and uh, initially, I, they had a bookstore, so we, we went there for months, bought books, read books. Then I decided to uh, to ask one day what kind of church they were. They were an independent Bible church. We went there. I stayed there for a while, and then we moved and then joined an evangelical free church. Became an elder there at some point. And as the time was going by, I was developing a hunger for the Word, started to get involved in ministry, 
develop a, a Bible study for AIDS patients uh, in my own office with Kathy and uh, got involved with a small group on Friday night from the church. Uh, I did some mission work. I became the doctor for a missionary organization called HiBA, which was a, an organization working with uh, um, high school students uh, in Japan, in Russia, and the U.S., and through that, I just developed a passion to teach the word. And then it became a point when I couldn't add enough of the word and the teaching of the word. And I wanted to go into ministry and even leave medicine behind if that was necessary. So that was the beginning of that transition. And so what year did you move back to Santo Domingo? Uh, 1997. Um my first impulse to leave medicine and do ministry was uh, 1992. Kathy wasn't ready for it. Two years later, 1994, she spoke to me. I'm leaving a lot of details out uh, for the sake of time. But two years later, she spoke to me about doing medicine, uh, doing ministry. I said, well, the problem now is that if I do that, I would like to do it in Santo Domingo. Uh, to my surprise, she was in agreement. Then it took us three more years to sell the house that we were living in, sell the practice, move her into my office because she was with a different group. I was by myself, move her into my office, sell the practice to the hospital uh, together and sell the house. And then three years later, we went to Santo Domingo. 97, May 97, uh, January 98, we planted the church. Uh, it was a Bible study of 10, 12, 14 people, and it grew to about 2,500 people on Sunday morning. Praise the Lord. T tell us uh, a little bit about Dominican Republic. Probably, I mean, our, our listeners have all heard of it. Probably most of them haven't been there before. Sure. Um, we'll, we'll get to the spiritual side, but just what's it like culturally, sure. economically? It's probably changed a lot in the 20 plus years that you've sure. been there. What would we find if we landed in the DR today besides some really good baseball players. Okay. Well, for those who do not know anything about Dominican Republic, is the uh, eastern part of the island uh, La Española. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other side is uh, Haiti. It was colonized by Spain. Um, we, were, uh, we became independent in 1844 from Spain. Uh, however, we had been on the... Uh, Haitian domination for 22 years from 20, now let me, let me go back, 1822 up to 1822, we were under Spain, 1822 to 1844, we were under domination from Haiti, and then we became independent from Haiti in 1844, then back, then again in 1863, we went back to Spain as a colony. And in 1865, we became independent from Spain, finally. And uh, to this day, uh, it's a uh, democracy. Um, we had a dictatorship from 1930 to 1961, a lot of unrest. Uh, during the 1960s, 65, we had an invasion from the U.S. for a year. And then the, uh, the U.S. left. And 66, to this point, the situation has been... A lot more stable. The economy has grown. Um, the uh, middle class has grown uh, in size as well as in the, uh, economically. Economically, that has made the country more stable. Obviously, um, it's developing a great deal. A lot of that 
impulse has come from tourism. Uh, that is the main source of, of income for the uh, uh, dollars, especially uh, for the country. Uh, a lot of tourism in the north, the east, now the west uh, as well, some in the south. Uh, so if you go now, you'll find the city, Santo Domingo, well-developed, a uh, uh, good amount of there's McDonald's, yeah, probably. There's plenty of yes. all, all the food change. Taco uh, Bell, so you can that, get some authentic Latin cuisine. <laughs> Taco Bell, uh, Burger King, you name yeah. it. Is there uh, Pizza Hut? And same thing with the stores. You know, all kinds of American stores and uh, chains are, are there as well. So, And talk about the... I'm really fascinated in this, and we're going to transition now to talk about church and theology, because I've heard you say, and I've heard Juan Sanchez, our mutual friend, say it before, that the the Reformation, which grew up out of European soil, and we can look, Luther's from Germany, Calvin is Swiss or, or French, and of course we know a lot about the, the history in the British Isles and the Netherlands, and there's reformers in Bohemia and Poland. So there's all across Europe, to the north, to the east, even some small things among Catholic places in, in Italy. But the Reformation, it seems, didn't ever really take root in Spain. Is that correct? Well, there was some uh, Reformation movement in Spain, uh, without a doubt, but it was not like the rest of Euro Europe. Yeah, uh, The Catholic Church re remain in control of uh, the... the uh, of Spain and uh, and the same thing for the rest of Latin America. It was colonized mainly by Spain, uh, including even Brazil. So the control in Latin America by the Catholic Church was quite severe. The Inquisition uh, was present there until 1820. Uh, there were three main areas where they uh, they functioned as such, and that was Mexico. They had different names at the time, but it was Mexico. Colombia, called the Grand Colombia at the time, and then Peru. Um, so with that control, it was almost impossible for the Reformation to, to get there, or at least to develop as, as such. So if you ask me, um, the, the uh, evangelical movement didn't begin until the 1960. The church planting movement uh, probably did not start until late the 1970s, and that was not Reformation theology. Uh, if you ask me, the nailing of the, what the nailing of the thesis uh, was in Germany with Martin Luther, uh, a 2010 event with John Piper was the Latin America. That's an event that was organized by our church. It's called Por Su Causa, for his cause. We do it every year. John Piper came, and we did it with the intention that from that event, perhaps something would spread, something would happen. And literally, that's the way it happened. People came from Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Cuba, Haiti, uh, Puerto Rico, and uh, U.S. even. And then uh, they went back and they started their new churches, but they also started new conferences, smaller uh, than the one we were uh, holding. And yet, uh, they have continued to do that. And then the internet, where the printing press was to mm -hmm. the Martin Luther Reformation, is where the internet uh, has been to this 
very new, fresh, young, immature still movement is in Latin America. And I think that's important that for U.S. people, for you to know, because you may judge what's happening in Latin America as if we would have had 200 years of history uh, of Reformed theology. Now, Reformed theology is much younger in Latin America, and yet it's spreading very fast due to the to the internet. It is amazing what is happening. Books are being written by Hispanic authors. Books are being translated. Um, podcasts, uh, programs, um, conferences, uh, all kinds of things happening. So uh, networking. There's a lot of networking at the same time. And uh, by God's grace and by his doing, we have been in the middle of all of that, and it has been a joy to see it. Yeah, that's wonderfully encouraging. And what what are, uh, are there, I mean, there are obstacles, there's always obstacles, but humanly speaking, what are some of the biggest obstacles? Do people uh, feel like this is from America, or this is from Northern Europe, or aren't you don't have those same sorts of obstacles. What What is it that would prevent someone from wanting to give the Reformed faith a hearing in the Spanish-speaking world? Well, I don't think it would be the kinds of things that you just mentioned, because there's a lot that is happening within the, That's right. the Latin countries. But um, I think is is the culture. The culture has been so used to emotions and so mm. used to and so not, not used to uh, rational thinking and logical thinking. And Reformed theology, it is very logical. It is rational. And uh, that is not necessarily what people were had been used to. So when I went down back in 1997, uh, a good number of people expressed that the kind of sermons that I was doing was not necessarily their taste. Uh, and yet, I think he, if you were to do it differently now, they will say, no, we don't want those sermons that, that we were used to. But even the singing, when I was there, when I when I got there for the first, I don't know how many years, but for a good number of years, the, the songs were very, in some sense, superficial. In another sense, they were not necessarily anti-biblical, but they were very emotional. Some of them even sounded like romantic songs mm-hmm. composed to God, basically. You could have changed the name of God and put your wife there, and it would have fit. Uh, that's not what you see now in many of, of the churches. Uh, um, we have been blessed by, by the Lord in, in many ways, and one of those is that uh, working with um, Bob Coughlin that you know and, and some other people, we were able to renew uh, the worship of our church, and from there, many other churches have been influenced. So that now when I travel, a lot of these songs that I hear are songs that either were composed by the Sovereign Grace Movement or were composed by people in our church, or songs that are very similar that we sang, we sing in our church Sunday after Sunday. So. That has been good. Even in Cuba, you know, you don't, they don't have, they are not as open to the outside world. And yeah, when I go there, I hear the same song. So mm. that is good to see, to hear, to worship at a deeper level. Um, so I think that was one of the main obstacles initially. I don't think that's so much there any longer, except for 
where prosperity gospel is mm-hmm. big. But I think prosperity gospel lost a lot of ground. And now with the pandemic, the sign and wonder, uh, wonders movement lost a lot of strength, which is good. And I think God is doing that in my view. The signs and wonders couldn't take care of the pandemic. Absolutely. Well, that's that's one that almost like disappeared from uh, yeah from one day to the other, which is good. So, um, talk about books a little bit. What have been some of the influential books in this new Reformation awakening, either for you personally or books that have been really meaningful in your church? And these could be books by uh, Spanish authors, maybe. We haven't heard of, but what what are some of the ones that are really helping the gospel work there? Well, you know, when uh, one of the good things that that took place was that very early on, uh, we had the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So you may recall some of the books that were published at that time. I'm trying to remember some of the titles, but a lot of those books, when they were published in English, uh, new books, then they were published almost at the same time in Spanish, and consequently. Uh, people were started to read them uh, at the time. And, and some of them initially were simple books, not very extensive. Uh, and then some people started to read them books by Calvin and, and Luther later on. But initially, I think, were books that were in some sense new and they were coming out with uh, the 500th anniversary. We did, we did two different things. I published a book called... Uh, Doctrine or Teaching that Transformed the World, and that was the five solas and the five points of Calvinism uh, mixed together. That uh, I think that worked very well, and uh, people received those uh, received the book very well, and it, it was, and I think had a lot of uh, circulation very quickly, uh, especially because it coincided with the 500 anniversary of the Reformation. It was purposely done that way. And I did a project of 95 theses for the evangelical church. And uh, this, they were not written. They were uh, 95 videos of three minutes. And each yeah, I remember vi- you doing that. Right. And each video was a thesis. And then it, be, it became a, a publication as well. And believe it or not, some of those videos have over 100,000, 200,000 views. And I think just two days ago, mm-hmm. someone wrote to me and said that it was one thesis that changed his life and his ministry. And uh, I think that's still paying off. And uh, that was also uh, important and significant at at the time. I think one thing that helped uh, was the fact that initially there was a lot of rejection and now thinking about another obstacle, uh, thinking about the question that you asked me, that Reformed theology encounter is that as you know, young people tend to be proud when they encounter Reformed theology. So mm-hmm. uh, now they were teaching the same thing, but in a proud way and, and in a condescending way. And that wasn't helpful. So um, one of the things that we needed to deal with was if you're going to do this, then you have to teach it in a humble way. Remember that you did not believe this doctrine. This is not something that, that you were born with and you grew up with. Uh, so if God was patient with you. You need to be patient with, with people. So I think over time that has been conquered to a great, uh, to a great degree. And, um, but that came to mind. I didn't want to leave it out. And the fact that we still need to teach that theology uh, in a humble way. And secondly, if you just teach 
that new uh, Reformation theology in a way that is here. This is the, the right doctrine. This is what you need to believe. I think you'll find a lot of resistance. I think if you're going to teach Reformed theology, and I think that's true for any place, and to people who never heard it, then the best thing to do it is just preach it from the Bible. Find mm-hmm. the, the text and uh, where that doctrine is, and then just do expositional preaching and so that people could see that before the Reformation, this theology was already there, and that the only thing that the Reformers did was to discover that theology. I did that in Cuba. I went to Santiago in Cuba, and I went to an Armenian seminary, and they asked me, they gave me one afternoon. I was teaching from Monday through Friday from 8.30 to 4.30 every day. And then on Thursday, they said, we're going to give you the afternoon to teach uh, Reformed theology. So uh, you could do anything you want that afternoon. And what I said at the beginning was, look, I... um, Go to John 6. Uh, well, I did not even do that, but I, okay. but I did use it. I did use it. John 6 is just probably the most predestinarian yeah. uh, chapter in the whole Bible, as you know. But, uh, but I said to them, indeed, I had the whole day. I remember that. Not the whole afternoon, the whole day. So early on, I said, you know, I'm not here to convince anyone because I don't have that power. Uh, if the Holy, if someone lives here, convinced this afternoon, just make sure that it wasn't me. Uh, it takes the Holy Spirit to convince you. That's number one. So I don't have that expectation. Number two, I'm not even aiming at that. Uh, the only thing I want to do is to show you where that theology is, and I'm going to do it in a different way. I said I'm going to ask one question at a time through the entire day. Then we're going to find three, four, five passages that will answer the question. And then at the end of that, I'm going to ask you to teach me what you think those passages that we read are saying. Hmm. So we took, for example, is the will free? Yes or no? Then I said, before you answer, let's just go through these passages. And then we took something like 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 25 and 26, where we're uh, Paul is, is telling Timothy to deal gently with those who oppose you uh, in case God grant them forgiveness, uh, re- repentance to uh, to free them from the, uh, I, I forget in English how it goes, but you may remember, to free them from the... They're ensnared by the devil. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, who has them ensnared uh, to do his will. So tell me what you think the passage is, is saying. Yeah, can you spring yourself out of the trap? That's right. It doesn't sound like it. And then we went through passages like uh, who the son says free is free indeed. So what happened before the son says you free? Uh, Romans 8, uh, 7, that uh, man cannot please God. Neither The the, the, uh, mind says on the flesh cannot please God, neither cannot do so. So that's inability that is there. And then at the end of the, the day, I say, okay, now is the Q&A. Any questions? And there were no questions because <laughs> they had been so so convicted by the words. So I think um, that represents an advancement of the Reformation movement. That's great. L- let me ask one more question, then we'll, we'll see if what Colin and Justin have. But you're very familiar with the States, and you've lived here in the States. 
So uh, really interested from your perspective, are the issues facing your church what seem to be the sort of issues you think we're facing here? Or give us give us sort of an, an insider-outsider's perspective on what you see the state of the church in the United States. Because it's often said you don't really know one culture until you know two cultures. And you can right. then sort of step out. And mm-hmm. so you really uh, know both cultures really well. What would you say to the American church, what we need to hear, strengths or weaknesses, good or bad? Well, um, let me see where I should start. If you look, <laughs> if you look at Latin America, let me start with Latin America. Yeah. Uh, the problem with Latin America has been that the worldview uh, of the con- of the continent had had been primarily animistic. So Pentecostal theology was fed by the animistic uh, worldview behind. Okay, so let me leave that there for a while. When you look at North America and Europe, modernism uh, impacted the church uh, significantly. So it became brainy, cerebral. And I think that has affected the church if you go back even before all of these issues that we're dealing with now. And that's where liberal theology came in. I think he's uh, a theology that in some sense, while becoming very academic, at the same time was divorcing from God. Mm -hmm. So we teach that God is in charge of everything and and God is the one leading and doing. But then when we do theology, well, I'm sorry, when we do church, we do church depending upon us our wisdom and our understanding, pragmatism, methodology. So we go to the pulpit not saying like Martin Lloyd-Jones, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Spirit. But in some sense, even if we don't say it, I think we go to the pulpit saying, I believe in hermeneutics, I believe in exegesis, I believe in the Greek, I believe in the Hebrew. And then God says, well, then just do it. If that's what you need, if that's what you think you you need it. So one weakness, uh, even before we get to uh, the current issues, is that even though in good churches we say we are not anthropocentric like the Armenians are, at the end of the day, it's still anthropocentric. Uh, I'm sorry about that. My my accent in Spanish. No, it's hard for for us for us to say. That's why we don't say it. We just right. say man man centered. Okay. <laughs> yep. um, so I think the church in America needs more of the presence of God, more dependence upon God, more dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I, I mean, you look at the life of Christ. I mean, his life dependent upon the Holy Spirit from beginning to end. He he was born of the Holy Spirit. Then he dies and. Hebrews 9, 14, I believe, says that he offered himself by the eternal spirit. That That is at the end of his life. He goes to the desert pushed by the Holy Spirit. He uses the word inspired by the Holy Spirit. He expelled demons in the power of the Holy Spirit. He dies and resurrects by the power of the Holy Spirit. Where did we miss it? Where did we miss it? Uh, the point, the the power of the Holy Spirit, if we couldn't do it without it, how dare us to try even to attempt to, to do it? 
So I think that's one weakness that is older than we want to believe and precedes uh, the time that we're living in now. And I think we need more, more injection of that. Uh, secondly, I think we need pastors in the pulpit uh, who preach, not just preachers. Um, we need pastors because at the end of the day, the church is about people. It's about ministering to people. And when Christ summarized life, he, he did it in two commandments. One is you love God. The other one is you love the neighbor. Uh, and the neighbor, as you know, is, is everyone. When imagine now when it comes to the sheep, uh, how much love we should have for the sheep. So my sermon should be exegetically correct, but it's not aiming at the exegesis. It's aiming at the hearts of the people who are in front of me who need to be fed, and I need to be burdened with, with their needs and their sorrows and their, uh, and their sadness and their sins even. Their sins should sad, sadden me. Paul said, who is, as you know, Paul says, who, who, um, who is uh, sinning, who, who makes someone sin that I'm not burdened and worry about him. So we need pastors in the pulpit who preach, who preach the word, not a mere preacher, because sometimes we think that pastoral ministry is about preaching, and there's a lot more than preaching in pastoral ministry. So we need that. Um, thirdly, I think we need less pragmatism uh, in the churches. Uh, we, need, we need to plan, but church is not about task and planning. It's about people. So we need to plan to minister to people, not to use people to get our plans and tasks done. So that's another weakness, yeah. I would say. And then now the issues of today, which are large and heavy and powerful, as you know, uh, gender ideology and same-sex marriage, and then politics, my goodness. Mm -hmm. um, we saw it, we read from afar, we felt that people even got involved in Santo Domingo to, into that politicking that took place, and that was hard. But I think what that revealed was the status of the church, the, the real status of the heart of the people in the church. Well, what, what I really love about your answer, Miguel, is uh, all those things that, that you mentioned at the end, gender and politics and the rest, are, are really important. And those are the ones that are most obvious and they need to be addressed. But I'm guessing that for most pastors out there, American pastors, people who would listen to this, who are well-trained and love Jesus and love the Bible, yeah, we need to be warned against those things. But what you said at the beginning is so true. It, it's are we preaching to the hearts of our people? Are we relying on the power of the Holy Spirit? The, those are the things that are probably in rank and file evangelical churches and pastors like me. Those are the things that we can forget. And those are the things we can be an expert on all of the most volatile cultural issues of the day. But when a man has to step into the pulpit, is he going to preach the cross of Christ, which I know is... Uh, is your heartbeat, and it's it's so evident in your preaching, always to direct people to the cross. Is it going to be in the power of the Spirit, or is it going to be based on our own man-centered power and pragmatism? And then, you know, we want to have great exegesis. We want to be well-trained, but 
are we preaching not just a technically correct sermon? We all who went to seminary can think of the sort of sermons, and sometimes even our professors gave us that. Here's the technically proficient way to do a message. And you got it right, and you did your transitions right, but there's there's no power, there's no unction, there's no preaching. It's an artifact of delivery, and it's not preaching to the hearts of people. So and yes, and and amen to that. Let me, you've been so gracious, give us your time. Let me circle back here. One last topic of supreme importance. Colin and Justin, did you take Spanish when you were in high school or college? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, Justin? See. See, Miguel, <laughs> what is what is most hilarious to you when Americans try to speak Spanish? I don't know if the word is hilarious because... Um, embarrassing? No, 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 it's not embarrassing. I really love the fact that you are more daring than our people are in trying to speak the language to whatever degree, maybe even a word or a phrase. <laughs> I think we're a lot more timid, and consequently, when an American decides to learn Spanish, I think he, you find him uh, speaking some of that or a lot of that a lot faster than what Latins uh, do when it comes to speaking English because they're very sheepish, very timid about making a mistake. And and when I say that you're more daring, I didn't mean it in the bad way. I I meant it oh, in the good of... way. Uh, yesterday you, you read something in Spanish on the pulpit about the name of integridad y sabiduría, which is not necessarily an easy thing to pronounce, but you try, you did it right. And um, now I think Latin Americans will be so shy they would not even try to say it. So I don't think it's hilarious. I think it's commendable. Well, that's kind. I think it's commendable, honestly. Well, it, um, a comedian that some of us listen to, Brian Regan, has a bit about you know the things that he learned in high school Spanish aren't the things that really help him talk to native Spanish speakers sometimes. Uh, and I think we we are experts on the colors. On counting to 100, <laughs> those are the things. Um, I always joke with our, our Spanish-speaking interns here. I had to listen in high school to these tapes, and you'd watch these little pictures, and you'd hear this speaker, and it would say, El perro dice, guau, guau. <laughs> El bebé dice, guau, guau. That, and that, that's the extent of my Spanish. Uh, well, I know a little bit more, but not much more than that. I, some other time... I'll regale you with um, Arriburriquito. There you go. <laughs> Arriburriquito, Arriburruare. Anda más deprisa que llegamos tarde. That's the one thing that Spanish Christmas carol, Arriburriquito, has stuck in my head. So uh, I, I, I was taught Donde esta el baño, which I think will come in very handy <laughs> wherever I go in Spanish speaking. That's important. <laughs> That's very Im importante. Uh, Miguel, thank you so much um, for your wisdom, for your insight, and your humility. Uh, we're not here to, to give you a big head, but it, you know, if if our listeners could see the work and the leadership that you're exercising, not just in the Dominican Republic, but really throughout the Spanish-speaking world in Latin America, it really is immense, and it's for good by God's grace and glory. So may God give you uh, 
good heart, good head, you and your your lovely wife, lots of good health for years to come because we're really grateful to see the work and we have lots to learn from you, dear brother. So thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, uh, Kevin and Colin and, and, and uh, Justin. And uh, part of my, my accent, you know, I used to speak uh, English every single day of my life. No, it's very good. Yeah. Really, it is. But uh, I'm not doing that anymore. So uh, I'm just trying to refresh uh, what I learned. So, But thank you for the opportunity to preach at your pulpit uh, with your people. The hospitality was great. And uh, I, they made me feel at home very quickly. Uh, I had a good time with the interns as well. And, uh, we were now, very grateful to have you and uh, love to talk to you anytime. And your accent's much better than, than Colin's. So we're <laughs> grateful for it. Thank you. Thank you, brother. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Next time, glorify God, enjoy him forever, and read a good book. <laughs>